Hi, everybody. Today, I have a guest who last appeared on the show in April 2017, when I was much heavier. So there has been a tra transformation in me, but apparently Cynthia Farahat never grows old because she is as lovely as seven years ago. How are you doing, Cynthia? Oh, thank you so much. Uh, well, I'm... I, I, I also went through a, a, a weight gain and weight loss uh, journey. I uh, gained uh, 65 pounds and lost them in three wow. years. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> Wonderful. How, what was your secret to your weight loss? Uh, cutting carbs and sugar. And did you, did you also, did you increase your physical activity in any? No. Okay. Just, just what went into this gluttonous mouth. <laughs> <laughs> very good oh, yeah. Yeah. well it's so good to see you again uh last for those of you who for the you know the viewers who don't know who you are you are originally from egypt you're coptic which is a very small minority of christian what what is it at now 10 percent is it in egypt uh the official narrative is 10 percent, but it's actually 25 to 30 they uh, play the demographic warfare by uh reducing them in case uh, they exterminate them. It doesn't look bad. <laughs> okay, got you. Uh, well, you came out with a book in 2022. And at the time, you had kindly reached out to me to come on the show and to discuss it. And uh, I'll be very open and I'll explain what had happened. At the at the at roughly the exact time when you had reached out to me, I had gotten a very uh, ominous uh, threat in person from some of the, what looked like these noble people of perpetual peace. And so I was trying to kind of regroup and try to see how to move forward. A year later, I had never forgotten that you wanted to come on the show. And so I reached out to you and said, okay, well, you know what? We can't be quiet. I've, I've never been quiet before. You've never been quiet. So please come back on the show. And so thank you for accepting my invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure, Gad. You know, my husband and I absolutely love you. You know that. Oh, you're too kind. Okay, let me mention the, the, the title of the book. It was actually published with Bombardier Books a few weeks ago. I had the pleasure of uh, chatting via a Zoom chat with the, uh, the editor of Bombardier Books. So the title of the book is The Secret Apparatus, The Muslim Brotherhood's Industry of Death. So why don't we start there and then we can... After we've discussed the book, we could link it to some of the current crises that we're seeing in the Middle East. So, uh, you know, Kat, the reason I decided to write the book is because there isn't a single book uh, in English about the Muslim Brotherhood's secret apparatus. Uh, and the subtitle of the industry of death is not my own hyperbolic interpretation of the lovely organization. That is what they are. They indeed call themselves. They say we are an industry of death. Uh, that's actually in their literature. That's how they identify themselves. So uh, I wrote this book because there is a very destructive uh, narrative in Western academia and policy circles that the secret apparatus has been dismantled. The secret apparatus is the Muslim Brotherhood's terror apparatus. Uh, some people will tell you it's been dismantled in the 50s, some in the 60s, some in the 70s. 
I actually never heard that until I came to America. And I was like, when did that happen? Uh, because they brag about ex its existence in Arabic, yet they deny its existence in English. And what is so ominous about this group is that it's not it's not uh, uh, like an separate organization. It is the governing body of the Muslim Brotherhood. And that is something I prove in my book from their own words. I almost exclusively relied on the words and the writings of the Muslim Brotherhood while discussing my book. There are 945 footnotes so people can track my own research. And uh, of course, it's mostly from what they say. And uh, it's not from secondhand uh, information. It's not from a translation. It's from original documents, speeches, TV appearances. Um, so they are indeed still up, still operating the secret apparatus. What happened in um, after the death of the uh, founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna, they started to uh, operate the secret apparatus under different banners. Uh, and uh, that's where the confusion comes from, whether it's intentional or not intentional. Uh, the first of these groups was called Tanzim 65, the group of 1965, which was headed by the Muslim Brotherhood terror theologian uh, Sayyid Qutb. And the second was Al-Takfir wal-Hijra, excommunication and immigration. Uh, and the third was the um, militia of the military technical college. And then Al-Jama'a al-Islamiyya, the Islamic group, and Islamic Jihad, uh, Tanzim al-Jihad. And then Hamas, of course, and Maktab al-Khadamat, which was the Afghan Service Bureau, and then Al-Qaeda, and then Jamaat al-Tawheed wal-Jihad, the group of uh, monotheism and jihad, which was headed by the horrific uh, uh, al-Zarqawi, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was a card-carrying member in the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Islamic State, ISIS or ISIL or Daesh, whatever you want to call it. Also, the head of Islamic State, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, was a card-carrying member of the Muslim Brotherhood. So was Osama bin Laden. So was Ayman al-Zawahri. So was Abdullah Azam. Until the day they died, and I prove this fact from the words of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, it's impossible. What is it's impossible to discuss these terrorist, uh, their their military wings. These are the Muslim Brotherhood's military wings, without mentioning the main organization. It's like uh, discussing uh, the Schutzstaffel, uh, uh, the SS, without uh, referring to the Nazi Party or the Nazi regime. It's you can never win this war by going after the little parasites without the incubator of terror that spawns all these groups under different banners. And they themselves admit that they operate these groups according to the secret apparatus bylaws, not my conspiracy theory, that before a Muslim Brotherhood member starts to embark on starting a terrorist uh, organization, he has to lie about severing the ties with the, mo with the main organization. Uh, that's something that uh, 
uh, is in their literature and they have been very successful at it. And of course, the terror pimps uh, in the West who uh, are uh, benefiting from this propaganda uh, are playing into this conspiracy uh, where they pretend that these groups, oh, they might have had uh, some connection to the Muslim, maybe one guys, but no, uh, patterns, uh, behavioral patterns, can reveal intent. And when all these Islamic terrorist groups are sprung out of the Muslim Brotherhood, this is not a coincidence. This is indeed their mode of operation. And, 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 And basically, that is the whole point of what, this is the major point uh, from their own words that I wanted to express. So you came on the show seven years ago. We're seven years later. In the meantime, of course, you've collected all of your information into this this book, which I highly recommend that people go and read it and you know pass judgments on their own as to the dangers of having Islamic doctrines all over the, the West. Do you feel that from where we were seven years ago regarding these issues and where we are now, have things stayed the same? Have they worsened from a Western perspective or have they gotten better? Uh, they have gotten exponentially worse, right? Um, because of there are many parties, uh, both in the West and in the Middle East, that have a, a huge interest in maintaining the status quo. Uh, the U.S. State Department uh, policy, foreign policy, since FDR has been one of dictatorship maintenance, whether it was maintaining a dictatorship in its classical form or maintaining the dictatorial, uh, philosophical, epistemological, and theological uh, habits of uh, other nations. Uh, So the dictatorship maintenance program is actually quite lucrative. If I have been offered millions of dollars, and I have proved to that, by the way, so I could pimp for the Muslim Brotherhood um, and uh, say uh, something along the lines where, oh, there are few bad apples, but we can't judge the full organization based upon them. Uh, They are just like conservative Christians uh, in America. There are a few talking points. Another one, the third talking point was that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, chapters in each country is independent from the main uh, violent body of the Egyptian organization. These are the three talking points that I was offered millions uh, to regurgitate. And because they are uh, not Mensa candidates, I have proof that uh, an email proof that they have tried to offer me these bribes. So imagine if I was in place of power, what would I be getting? Wow. So I know that the Muslim Brotherhood also operates its tentacles through you know, setting up various Muslim student associations at universities, correct? All over the place. Yes? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would dare say that 99.9% of the Muslim students associations are uh, front groups for the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, 
that's something that they themselves say uh not uh, not also my conspiracy theory so they have uh, something that is uh, very very uh, um uh, important so the muslim brotherhood in my opinion is the most uh, sophisticated uh, criminal enterprise in modern history uh, because it has cloaked its criminal and genocidal uh, agenda in religious terminology that gave it a sort of immunity from being judged as a political organization uh, they have also been very successful in uh, they have under the secret apparatus, they have an international apparatus, and they also have a, um, uh, a, a intelligence apparatus. So uh, the international apparatus, they call it the vanguards of organized invasion. Right. That's wow. what they call it. Wow. <laughs> that's that's what they call it. Again, not my conspiracy theory. That's not what I call them. That's I, what I'm, they say. I'm guessing you keep saying conspiracy theory because probably that's the what your detractors most often accuse you of, where when you try to put together all of these arguments, well, stop being so conspiratorial, Cynthia. Is, is that why that's that word is so prevalent in, in the top of your mind? Yes, because I constantly have to... Uh, it, it, it's quite obscene, honestly that uh, I have to, when I verbatim translate what they're saying from English to Arabic, people shoot the messenger. But they, they can't say, they can't say they can't say it's because you don't speak Arabic because that's your mother tongue. They can't say it's because you're not from the region because you are from the region. But what they can say, because I get accused of the same thing, but you're not Muslim yourself, therefore you can't really understand the nuance of the theological positions. Had you been a Muslim theologian from Al-Azhar University, then you could have had the imprimatur that allows you to speak on this. But as a simple mere kafir, how dare you talk about these things? You know, uh, I've I've worked on this book for since since 1998. Since I was a teenager, because what I have done is something that is incredibly unorthodox. And I have studied Islamic theology the way a mufti would study Islamic theology. It took over 20 years of monastic study. At some point, I did not leave my house for seven months because I had to undergo everything an Islamist undergoes until he reaches the position of the Mufti. And I studied every single book, thousands and thousands and thousands of books that they themselves study so that I am able to not only understand what they say, but also predict their behavior because I am more in their heads than uh, the vast 99.9% .9 of Muslims. And uh, that it took me uh, a lot. My, 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 the own, my, my document for my research is over a thousand words of bullet points. Uh, so I am 
very in tune and saying this argument is so disgusting because it's like telling a Jewish person, ah, you're not a Nazi. How dare you speak about Nazism? Exactly. Ah, ah, are you, were you a member of the Nazi party? Uh, no, you weren't. So shut up about Nazism. It's just disgusting. And there isn't a low they wouldn't stoop to, to try to uh, apologize for these horrific uh, uh, for these horrific Islamists. So what's the ultimate goal of the Muslim Brotherhood? So if, if you were playing in the World Cup of soccer, the ultimate goal is to win the World Cup. So we all agree what that objective is. What's their ultimate objective? So the Muslim Brotherhood is a cult. Um, it operates as a cult. Uh, it's exactly as ritualistic as a cult. Um, and its main objective is, of course the annihilation of every single non-Muslim because that would be able, they would be able to bring about when they annihilate all non-Muslims, they would be able to bring about in their occultist theology, uh, the end of times and the Islamic Messiah, which is the Mahdi who will exterminate the less the 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 the, the rest of the a few remaining infidels and then of course they want to bring about the end of times the muslim brotherhood not only has an extermination pro program for uh jews christians and all non-muslims it also has an extermination program for muslims which they call which is the blood blood tax and they believe according to their own words that they need to ritually sacrifice every muslim who is outside their organization uh, as uh, to show penance and apology to Allah for abandoning Sharia law. So when you look at uh, their their horrific treatment uh, and that re to, of Gazans, of their own people in Gaza, uh, it's because they believe in that. They believe that these people should be exterminated and they will go to heaven this way. The Muslim Brotherhood doesn't only want to kill infidels. They want to die also in the process because the ultimate high, uh, uh, you, you, to be a martyr, uh, you need to die in the process of killing an infidel. And that is the ultimate dream and the ultimate goal of every single Islamist. That's what they say. So, and then of course, uh, world domination. Uh, that's one of the main, of course. The world will be peaceful once it is all united under the flag of Allah, right? And that's why Islam is a religion of peace viewed from that perspective. We are seeking peace through the annihilation of everyone who doesn't believe in what we believe. And therefore it is peaceful. Uh, actually, you, you, this is almost a coat. What you just said is almost a coat. Uh, there is a very perverse definition of uh, words like peace, words like freedom, words like uh, um, uh, democracy, uh, governance, uh, even the word crisis, for example. The word crisis is code for the activation of jihad. So everything, everything has a code an alternative 
theological definition. And I go into this extensively in my book from their own writings, how they define these words. Freedom is the freedom from the transgression against every form of transgression against Allah. If you're having a glass of beer, they have to eliminate you. And that's freedom because they are liberating the world from every form of taghut which is uh the basically idol worshiping and the uh uh they are that's the, that's that's the definition of liberation so how do we so you know i've spent just like you have decades screaming from the top of the mountain about some of these dangers and of course most people don't listen to us but through my journey of trying to warn people, given my own personal history, given my knowledge of these issues, I, I've been met with a lot of the usual rebuttals that I'm sure you've also faced yourself, typically from Westerners, but at other times from Muslims themselves. And I document many of these and I catalog them in, in the parasitic mind. So in chapter six and seven, I spent a lot of time talking about ostrich parasitic syndrome, which is, you know, burying your head in the sand so that, you know, mm -hmm. la la la, I don't want to hear it. So maybe I can kind of mention some of these with you and see if you have some alternative strategies to, to argue against some of these rebuttals. So here's one. Well, my uncle Ahmad and my aunt uh, Fatima are absolutely lovely people. They just want to live in peace. They just practice the spiritual elements of Islam. They've never harbored any ill will to any Jews ever. They, they, you know, and as a matter of fact, that statement is probably true of most Muslims. So how could you try to explain to people that the fact that you can identify millions of Muslims who don't want to have anything to do with whatever the, the specific Islamic theology of supremacy and domination is offering that doesn't take away from the fact that wherever islam goes and becomes dominant you're going to have trouble notwithstanding the fact that ahmed and fatima are perfectly lovely people i i get this all the time uh yes people tell me the same thing but my neighbor is so sweet but my yes but that's not what we're talking about we are talking about organized an organized criminal enterprise that controls the narrative that goes out to the vast majority of muslims and the vast majority of westerners this is not some italians are very peaceful and loving people but that does does this mean that the mafia didn't exist it did exist so uh i don't understand why People can't, Germans, there are lots of German lovely, most Germans are wonderful, amazing people. But were they involved in Nazism historically? Yes, they were. So I, I think that the difficulty, and you, you alluded to it earlier when you were originally introducing the Muslim Brotherhood, by cloaking themselves in the robe of religion, it caters to a unique uh, weakness in the Western mindset, which is it is inappropriate to attack someone's faith. It is wrong. It is gauche. It is ugly. And so it's easy to attack Nazism because it, it doesn't cloak itself as a religion. It's a, it's a political philosophy. It's easy to attack Marxism or communism because there's nothing sacrosanct about that. But the minute that you attack religious beliefs, well, we're in a different game now and you don't have the right to do that. 
that's true and uh that falls and and it's not my problem that they have decided to desecrate their own religion by incorporating ritual sacrifice it's one of its most important tenets so if you remember in the 70s and the 80s there was a satanic panic in the west about ritual abuse and uh this is exactly what islamists are, are doing they are engaging in uh, ritual sacrifice of infidels and of Muslims who do not subscribe to their ideology. And we need to also, the, the way I do it is generally draw parallels between uh, Jim Jones was a cult. It was almost a religion. Uh, but was it a murderous cult? Yes, it was. A ritual sacrifice with the satanic, uh, uh, with some of the satanic serial killers. Uh, was it uh, a criminal? Yes, it was. It doesn't cancel it. And people who refuse to see that, yes, they're, uh, they will not tell you this about the Crusades, by the way. Okay. They're not going to tell you this about the Crusades. Uh, they will still hold Christians responsible today for the Crusades, but they're not going to do it with Islamists. So what what, what do you think explains, uh, and we, we, we might have discussed this the first time you were on the show, what is it that makes it uniquely difficult for Westerners to ever speak openly about the dangers of many of the Islamic tenets? Yes, we both concede that we both know millions of lovely Muslims who are perfectly nice and we'd love to have them over for dinner. But there is some absolute reticence from Western leaders to, to accept the fact that all religions are not equal in their capacity to, to serve as a threat to Western values and none more so than, than Islam. Are you? Do you think it'll ever be the case? I mean, we're seeing now with a lot of governments that are now winning at the polls who are, like, for example, in the Netherlands now, right? Geert Wilders just won, where there seems to be an awakening of uh, the Dutch population saying, well, maybe we've had enough of immigration. Uh, but do you, do you foresee that? I mean, is there any optimism or is this a downward slide into the abyss of infinite hell? So it's uh, it's not a lean I see I see progression with good progression but it's not linear it's going to have some hiccups you know like a chart it's just going to be uh, up and down until this happens and I believe that and I covered this in my last chapter of my book which I titled he's not your bastard because when I first came to the United States I had a one of my first meetings was the State Department with a gentleman who still works there and I told him we have to do everything we can to stop the Muslim Brotherhood he's like there's no we there's you we want the Muslim Brotherhood they are bastards but they are our bastards so that uh, phrase was originally attributed to FDR, sometimes to Nixon. So, but that is the philosophy of State Department, and they think we're going to ride the tiger. So, there is uh, narcissism in the way they approach uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. They think they can ride the tiger. Well, uh, no, they can't. It will end up 
uh, just eating them first, not even last. And they there's also the some um, sociopathic individuals in U.S. and foreign and Western governments that have an admiration for these guys, by the way. I've seen that. I've seen a glimpse of admiration that why because it's the, it's a conquering religion it's a it's a, a it's a confident it's a masculine religion is that the general idea oh it's a yeah because it's a power trip they envy that they that there are peoples out there who can subjugate rape torture with impunity there i've seen that there are a lot of you know it's not a, it's not a secret that uh, politics attracts a lot of uh, narcissists and sociopaths okay so when i say some of them do admire islamists uh yeah that's not so far fetched that oh, wow. uh, there are there's an admiration for perpetrators um and the individual who used to uh, who told me there's no we there's you um used to taunt me uh, and I saw that he was getting a, he was getting a power trip from taunting me as a copt by showing me, for example, uh, the, in 2012, he showed me what was going to be, or late 2011, what was going to be the constitution of Egypt under the Muslim brotherhood. I was one of the first people that saw it. There was no vote or referendum about it. He showed it to me just just because he was getting psychological gratification from taunting me this way. This is at it's, the start of the Arab Spring when Mubarak yeah. fell and the Muslim Brotherhood came in, in Egypt. So, yes, yeah, so, so I saw the psychological profile of this horror of a human being who's still in State Department, by the way. So you have these individuals in power, and that is why um, also corruption what I just told you is that I was offered uh, millions of dollars. What are these guys getting offered? If I'm offered millions of dollars and all my power is to be able to talk to directly to the American people, that's all the power I yield. Um, what, what was he offered? So it's a very, very nice place to be. They are not getting death threats. We are getting death threats, you and I. Yeah. They are in positions of power. So there is a lot um, of rewards on being on this horrific side of history. Right. Well, when I mentioned earlier, when I asked you, has it gotten better or worse since seven years ago? Of course, I knew the answer to it. And, and it, you said, I think it's been exponentially worth, um, uh, worse. I, I'm going to say that that's an understatement. And I, I often say that demography is destiny, Right. Uh, I'm hardly the first to to make that point. And we see now in the West that, for example, when the Hamas, you know, the massacre happened on October 7th, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you couldn't have had the pro-Hamas demonstrations that you now have in every city in the West because you didn't have the numbers for it. But today you have the numbers and wait another 10 years, inshallah, or wait another 20 years, inshallah, and it's going to get a lot more difficult. So again, it's a and that one of the reasons why I put out a few tweets that were quite pessimistic 
pessimistic is because notwithstanding that I am someone who's very happy by predis- by disposition, I'm realizing that it's almost an intractable problem because the more the problem worsens, the the more Western policies double down on not wanting to deviate from that course of action, right? So Canada is saying, well, we're going to bring in 500,000 immigrants a year now per year. So they're ramping it up. And many of those immigrants come from countries that have endemic Jew hatred as part of their cultural and religious fabric. So it doesn't take a fancy professor to put all those patterns together. And so I was unbelievably dismayed, uh, Cynthia, when I saw the level of open, brazen Jew hatred everywhere, coming from every direction, because the mask is truly off now in the West. Can we put back the cat in the bag or are we are we doomed, Cynthia? So it has to get a lot worse before it gets better, unfortunately. Um uh, that 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 is that that is the painful part of it is that it, it it has to get worse before it gets better, um, and uh, uh the, the problem is when you talk to uh, for example, Islamist, there is no ambiguity about what this war is about. Uh, they with say. Hamas. With Hamas and with with all of them, with the Muslim Brotherhood leadership in 2000, I can't remember which year exactly. We were having so much debates and one of them with uh, with Muslim Brotherhood leadership uh, with my political party. And I asked them a question. I told them, what would you do if every Jew in Israel converted to Islam tomorrow? What would you do? They said, Peace. There'd be no war. Perfectly stated. That's what I always say. It's got nothing to do with land. It's got to do with theology. And they themselves say it's not a war. It's not. It's not a war about land. It's a war about existence. Uh, the Arabic phrase is "harba uh, wujud la harba hudud." That's their slogan, not mine. It's a a war for existence, not a war over borders. It's a war of exterminating the Jews. The fact that the Jews exist, that's the problem. It's not about borders. They don't care about the borders. So what do you you think about your uh, good friend Rashida Tlaib, which I hate how Americans say her name, by the way. Uh, but ha- what do you think of your good friend Rashida Tlaib when she says, but but uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is an aspirational, peaceful message. It's got nothing to do with freeing the, those lands from the from of Jews. Now, the reason I say this, you and I can laugh about it, but I can go on social media today and show you a million people who say, yes, it's got nothing to do with the genocidal call. It's a call for peace and coexistence. But you know, but but here's my problem. Uh, I don't believe them when they say that. You don't, I don't believe, believe them. the you mean the Rashidas or the ones who 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 say that they believe what she's saying. The ones that say that they believe her. Oh. I don't believe that they they. That I think they could be lying. so stupid. There are definitely some of them that are very dumb, very very dumb. But I think it plays into the bigotry of anti-Semitism right. of many people, because um, 
where are they uh about when when you know when Saddam Hussein was murdering his own people when uh Assad was murdering his own people when did Assad was basically going with a scorched earth policy where well, they weren't protesting they don't care about Muslims it's about exterminating Jews it's about anti-semitism I don't believe them I do not believe them and I refuse to believe them even the stupid ones if you are so stupid and you want a virtue signal why is that the topic you chose why aren't you virtue signaling about the billion how about why aren't you virtue signaling about the slaves held in in bondage in Africa right now why aren't you uh talking about the uh, girls who, who are uh, a million Muslims in Chinese concentration camps you're not virtue signaling there you're virtue signaling about Jewish extermination because you want Jews exterminated and what's amazing I mean what I found you, you know when I grew up in Lebanon at least I knew that the the Jew hatred that I was experiencing came from one source, right? I mean, I understood what the dynamics were, even as a child and certainly later as an adult. But what's happened now post-October 7th, Cynthia, is that the, the level of Jew hatred that's coming at me, and you know, it's not like I say so, such controversial things or I'm so incendiary. Most of the time, I'm very professorial, very reasoned, very measured. I receive it from the, of course, the progressive left, the academic types who hate the Jews. I receive it from the Islamic sources who, of course, hate the Jews. But I also receive it from the ultra-right, the the neo-Nazi, the neo-Nazi white nationalist types who, you know, uh, uh, Jews will not replace us. So I can't catch my breath because at least before I knew there was only one horse of Jew hatred that's coming at me. But now they're coming at me from every direction, Cynthia. What am I to do? Uh, well, um, I can't remember which commentator said, uh, count me a Jew and come for me first. So how about <laughs> don't go after the Godfather, count me a Jew and come for me first, you spineless maggots. Shukran, ya halwe, shukran. That's what we have to have as much as there is Jew hatred, there is love for the Jewish people. There are millions of people like me and my husband who are behind the Jewish people who are who would go who would stand in front of you to protect you during an attack we are also growing they are growing but we are also growing but we are not doing the twitter jihad and the hate mail so we are not uh you can't see how many of us exist right but every reaction has uh, uh, every action has a reaction. And I'm telling you from uh, experience, uh, when I was in Egypt, the horrific, obsessive hatred against Coptic Christians was so pervasive. It was legal, according to Egyptian law, to rape Coptic Christian women. It was legal to murder them. Legal. You could literally slit the throat of a Coptic Christian and you'd be a hero in your village. Um, and that all crumbled. It crumbled. Now it's no longer the mainstream stance. Sexual assaults were so pervasive that I can't count the numbers I was sexually assaulted in Egyptian street. It's numerous. I can't, it's impossible to count the numbers. Now 
that has become a uh, frown upon uh, action. Now women can look like me in the street and that would be okay. When I was in Egypt, people used to spit on me when I walked down the street because of my, because I, the way I had my hair. But I believe that the other side, evil is weak. Evil is, doesn't have much legs to stand on. Truth resonates more with people. Truth, they can, they have spent billions of dollars on radicalizing Egyptians. Billions, billions for decades, radicalizing them. Al-Azhar University right now, it's still teaching the legitimacy of cannibalizing an infidel, okay? Uh, do we cook the, the etiquette of eating the infidel? True story, by the way, okay? From the book Al-Iqna'a fi Hal Al-Faz ibn Abi Shuga'a. Uh, so I just want to explain what that means. There, there is a, there's kind of a unique way of speaking in Arabic that kind of has a bit of a venomous kind of sarcasm, which your good friend Basim Yusuf tries to do on the shows. But I see this idiot coming from a mile away. He impresses all the Westerners. And I think to myself, I would destroy this buffoon in five seconds. She would because because he's a he, he, he's a he's a hateful he's a hateful nasty oh man. my god he he's is disgusting just... he's disgusting just disgusting and he doesn't have a good sense of humor but he's not that funny okay I, I agree has, I, he's I, not I can... funny at all he's not funny and he's, uh, he's I mean let me use a word that's in Arabic that and I think you'll agree he is semmawi right he's got oh. he, right he's got it's 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 like this poison that he spews and yet somehow for the western mind they don't see what he's doing no no they don't uh, they're gullible we 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 come from this culture we know what he's doing uh but you know but, but but here's the thing these things used to really 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 bother me when i was in egypt they 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 really disturbed me, but they don't disturb me anymore because I have seen how the billions, the decades for radicalization came crumbling like that. It just collapsed on its under its. Uh, it just collapsed uh, as soon as soon as Muslims were allowed to see the horrors of Islamism. Against their own people, not against Jews and Christians, but against their own people. And as soon as they were allowed to express their opinions without the threat of blasphemy law, what did they do in 2013? We had the biggest anti-Islamism rally in the history of the human race. And it was almost 30 million people that took the streets and they were screaming against Islamism. And um, there was suddenly uh, much more openness towards Coptic Christians, much more openness towards Jews, by the way, much more openness towards Israel. If, but Israel is no longer called the Zionist entity in Egyptian TV, by the way. It's called Israel. That yeah. wasn't the case. That wasn't the case since, the since, since 1948 till twenty. <laughs> 20- 13 Egypt was called the uh, Israel was called the Zionist entity now it's called Israel
but do you feel, I mean, notwithstanding that any small victory is a victory that should be celebrated, but do you feel that the 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 speed at which many Western countries are getting Islamized does not necessarily allow us, uh, I use an expression uh, often in Arabic, which you might uh, appreciate, uh, right? So, so to get drunk simply by... It, that, Okay, so they don't call it anymore the Zionist entity. That's great. That's an improvement. But then you also have millions of people who've now come into the West who don't share any of your foundational values. How does that weigh in against the progress of no longer calling it Zionist entity? So it seems to me that there has to be a an awakening of people that, that while individuals might be perfectly lovely, the, regrettably, there are many fundamental tenets of Islam that are perfectly incongruent perfectly contrary to western traditions and so if if we agree that that's true does that mean that islam can't coexist in the west uh so so it, it goes back to my point that it will get a lot worse before it gets better um well awaken egyptians and why the muslim brotherhood isn't able to mobilize four people to commit a riot or a terrorist attack in egypt true story by the way they have been trying to get four people to commit a terrorist attack and they couldn't is because they have lost serious leverage inside the country and the reason this happened is because things got a lot worse before it got better when you and i would tell them um, this is a horrific ideology. Don't think that they are going to spare you. Um, they never listened until the Muslim Brotherhood erected slaughter tents. That's what they were called, slaughter tents, where they would remove the scalps of uh, of of the random people, uh, where they would mutilate them. Everything you saw on October 7th, they Jaffer. have done everywhere they existed, everywhere they existed. Their death toll is in the millions. And I'm proving this in my book. The death toll is not in the hundreds of thousands. It's in the millions. One example, when they ruled the country of Sudan, uh, Omar al-Bashir was a card-carrying member of the Muslim Brotherhood. All these atrocities, the splitting of the bellies of pregnant women and burning people alive. I have I I know people who ran away from Sudan who have experienced these horrors. I know people who have seen their parents getting burnt alive. I have I've I know a person who saw his mother slaughtered and then raped after she died by these animals. So their death toll is in the millions and sadly horrifically until people see this with their own eyes, they don't believe it. You know, it's one funny. of my relatives. Yeah, one of my relatives told me, "I'm not going to believe it until I see blood in the street." And guess what happened? There was blood in front of her house on the I, street. I, I told I, her, "Do you believe me now, you monster? You horrific excuse of a human being." Is that what it took, the spilling of blood for you to... And unfortunately, when you look at a country like uh, uh, the, uh, the UK, uh, France, uh, do, do you think it's going to end without a civil war? Exactly. Do you think I, it will end without a civil war? But even 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 in Canada, where we're... I mean, we're it's, it's going getting pretty bad here. Uh, 
but it's not quite as bad as some places in Europe, but quickly catching up. Uh, a lot of the Jews that I know, the super progressive, super liberal kind of queers for Palestine Jews, they're now coming around and sending me emails and saying, oops, I guess we should have listened to you, Dr. Sat. But it's only because their son, Mordechai, was accosted aggressively at the university. Only then did it strike home. But until then, all the warnings of Cynthia Farahat and Gad Saad didn't matter. That's not true. It doesn't happen in my neighborhood. It will never come here. Stop exaggerating. Stop being hyperbolic. Oops, I guess you're right because now Mordechai faced it. That's an ugly part of human nature, which is as long as it doesn't personally affect me, therefore it must not exist. There is no diabetes because I don't have diabetes. Therefore, there is no such disease. Exactly. And also there is an element of cowardice. Uh, because if they admitted to themselves that you and I are right, that means they have to do something about it. But it's easy to go after their Orthodox Jewish uncle and make fun of him, right. okay? Because he's not going to blow up himself over Shabbat dinner, but... So they can criticize him and make fun of him or of their aunt that goes to church every Sunday. It's easy to make fun of those people because they don't self-combust. So <laughs> it's it, that's the so it's easy. They're easy targets. So they want a virtue signal, but they're cowards. They're oh, cowards. I hear you. Uh, have you been able to break through more than you might have seven years ago when we last spoken? In some of the echelon in government, do you have you gotten to their ear, or are you still screaming in the wind? Uh, it, it's gotten a lot worse, especially under President Biden. Uh, prior to President Biden, I was in uh, frequent communication with uh, U.S. law enforcement and Congress, and uh, they pulled the plug on communicating with me under President Biden, who's uh, basically uh, President Obama's third term. So they have pulled the plug on communicating uh, with me. So it has gotten, uh, um, no, they they actually have, I've been trying to oh. cancel, you know. Do you know my book uh, was banned on Amazon for a while? Is that right? Yeah. And how how did it come back? What what happened? What did you do to to bring it back? Um, I I I can't I can't really discuss the details of that. But the reason it was banned was because it embarrassed U.S. Uh, governmental agencies. I see. Can Got you believe? It. That's a, that's amazing. But I mean, it doesn't surprise me. So it's back right now on Amazon, but uh, people don't want to hear it because if they hear it, if they believe it now, what are they have to do something about it? And it goes back to the, so they would become what dissidents. Right. Do you, do you feel that if you, if now uh, a, a Republican president, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, Trump or someone else, if they uh, take back the white house, You'll be back on the calling card. 
I will be, yes, absolutely. Because, uh, and it will, so th there's something else that is, uh, that really, really makes me uh, just disgusted is the fact that if October 7th had happened under Trump, which of course it wouldn't have happened under Trump, right. they would have blamed it on Trump. Are they blaming Joe Biden now, Uncle Joe? For this atrocity are they blaming him for the uh russian ukraine war are they blaming him for the uh draconian power of the iranian regime and the draconian power of the qatari regime which by the way is a card carrying member of the muslim brotherhood and it is uh directly responsible for their military wing uh the turks are responsible for the political wing that's the dynamic uh, of these two Muslim Brotherhood regimes. So everything has gotten exponentially worse under uh, Obama's third term. And uh, I think uh, the next, uh, whoever, it, it can't get any worse. So any Republican, it's going to be a lot better because Islamists know that these guys are not their friends right. to a certain, to, to, to a large degree. What what is what are some projects? I mean, you 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 only came out with this book in twenty twenty two, so maybe you're taking a bit of a break. But are there other projects that you're working on? A documentary, a show, uh, another book? Tell us about some of the plans that are coming up for Ms. Farahat. I'm working on a podcast. Okay. Yes, because I um, I'm. It's very hard. I want to break down everything in my book because let me tell you something that really uh, has uh, traumatized me to a large degree. The atrocities that happened on October 7th are all are all in the Muslim Brotherhood um, literature. Even, even, for example, there was a specific video that haunts me of a uh, Jewish girl who is taken out of the uh, taken out of a jeep with a bloodied pants and when I saw this that broke me it broke me because it's in my book it's in my book the sexual torture of stabbing women in their vaginas. That's in the book. That's what they say they're going to do. The gouging of the eyes is in my book. That's what they say they're going to do. They're a bunch of serial killers. They're Islamists or glorified serial killers. And that's why I'm going to start a podcast to basically talk about each of these little elements and how they have dehumanized them to the point where they can shoot a woman in the head and then proceed to rape her corpse, these necrophiliacs, these, it's just, just disgusting, disgusting, horrific uh, excuses of human beings. That's why I'm going to start a podcast to be able to talk about these things from their own words. Because okay. nothing is- Will it be is... in Arabic or will it be in English? English. Okay. Arabic's uh, it's all in Arabic. But they no, but but is it worthwhile that some of the messages that many of our Middle Eastern friends may not also be familiar with? So think about I don't know if you know um, you must know Hamid Abdel Samad, right? Do you know who that is? Yeah. Right. He's he's one of my favorite guests of all time. He's been a few times on my show. I went on his show once, uh Sandu al Islam, the the box of Islam. 
And uh, he does great work because he's reaching the population in the Middle East that needs to hear some of these realities. So I'm wondering if there could be a way where not only do you awaken the Western mind, but you can also target some of the Middle Eastern minds, given that you, of course, speak Arabic. That's something that I have considered as well. But my priority now is uh, because 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 incredibly uh, our there are more people who are saying what I'm saying in in Arabic now. Mm. Um, so, like for example, the show there's a show, the Daily Show, uh, in in Arabic, uh, hosted by Islam Bahari, who eviscerates Islamist theology, eviscerates it. Oh, every day just, in Egypt. Just, oh yeah, just oh, tears it to tears it to thread, just tears it apart. Uh every day on TV, the stuff he says. Oh my God, twenty years ago, you, you would have been crucified in the street for do, for saying it. So, um, no Arabic speaking uh, populations are uh, the Muslim Brothers. A curse word, for example, right now. Wow, that's that's a curse word. Do you know that at some point, if you walk down the street in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood beard, you could be a target for an attack. Uh, so but but hold on, but then the people from this side of their mouth will say, you know, Ikhwan al-Islamiyah. That's oh, that's bad. But 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 Islam is beautiful. It's because they're perverting. Islam, real Islam, if only you understood it, Cynthia, is beautiful. The Muslim Brotherhood is is doing a perverted Islamist version of Islam. That's one of the fundamental problems, which is when you constantly uh, create a myth, a, a, a unicorn separation between Islam and Islamism, that gives you protection, right? So uh, let me just explain a bit more and then you can weigh in. About 90% of Islam is political Islam, hence, therefore, Islamism. There's only about 10% that's the nice, beautiful, spiritual stuff. Now, most people will say, but I only ascribe to the beautiful stuff. But that then you're playing cafeteria Muslim, right? You're saying, I'm going to pick and choose the parts that I like. So that guy who is attacking the, the Muslim Brotherhood guy with the beard, but yet then later goes to the mosque where the imam starts off the prayer cursing the Jews. So then how is he different from the Muslim Brotherhood guy? Actually, he is because uh, they, they have stopped in Egyptian mosques um, preaching against uh, uh, Jews and Christians. Uh, it used to be, Allahumma al-ana al-Yahuda wa nasara Allahumma rammil nisa'ahum yattim atfalahum. Like uh, turn their wives into widows and turn their children into orphans. And that was the regular prayer that I used to wake up at 4 a.m. to from our local mosque, blaring. Now that doesn't exist anymore. The way I believe... Um, it's going to resolve. There is a 1,000-year-old war going within Islam uh, between basically the Islam that is creating ISIS and the Muslim Brotherhood and between the between the Mu'tazilite sect, which was inspired by um, Ibn Rushd and inspired by Aristotle, where they believe that every religious text should be re should should be uh, subjected to uh reason 
and critical thinking and not the other way around. You should not subjugate your mind to is to religious texts. You should subjugate religious texts to your own mind. So the Mu'tazilites lost this battle. Exactly. Okay. So what's happening, what's happening right now is a huge, huge revolution for the revival of the Neo-Mu'tazilites where they are able to um, say uh, all of the war aspects of modern Islam, whether it's in Quran or Hadith or Sunnah, is invalid. It's no longer valid and it's criminal to subscribe to these behaviors right now. They treat it as a historic text, like, for example, in the Bible, we should uh, stone adulterers or something like that. That is history. That is no longer something that is valid to subscribe to in modern times. And it has been gaining a lot of traction, uh, whether in like the, the gentleman I talked about, Islam al-Bahiri, who has a daily TV show, he doesn't say that he subscribes to the sect of Neomotazalites, but the same preachings. So this is getting very, very, very popular in the Middle East, so much so that um, when I used uh, when I used to talk to some of my Muslim friends uh, twenty years ago, they stopped talking to me. When I tell them you should do that, they stop talking to me. Now they talk to me again, and they tell me, "Ah, oh, we've always believed in that. That's so normal. Are you crazy? Of course." And I, and I just I, and I I I just get flabbergasted that they have the audacity to say that sort of thing. But that's why I'm hopeful for the Middle East. It not. But not like, for example, look at look at the reaction of uh, Muslim countries to Palestinian refugees. Why do you think they don't want to take them? <laughs> because every time they went into a country, they eviscerated it. You know, firsthand. I know. <laughs> you know, you lived it. You lived personally it. lived it. Okay, so I unfortunately, I'm very on the long run. I'm optimistic on the short term. I'm very pessimistic yeah, because no, I was going to say that what you just mentioned earlier about making those passages null and void, I actually couched it in in the Islamic doctrine of abrogation, right? Where you know you've got the Meccan period that's all nice and sweet, then you've got the Medinan period that becomes much more violent, and then of course the way that you reconcile those contradictions is you got the mechanism of abrogation the later verse abrogates the earlier verse and so i've often said that the only way you're going to reform islam is is not is you, you can't sit there and try to debate the philology of what the word kill means does it mean kill with kindness or does it literally mean kill 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 but what you have to do is come up with some new mechanism that abrogates every single violent verse making it null and void and so what you're saying is that that reformation process is actually taking place. Oh yes, and I, uh, I, I and CC uh, himself never came out and said that he uh, believes in these ideals. But when you look at his policies and his speeches, he has extensively discussed uh, similar ideas. One of the main important things that CC has ever said: the Islamic concept of dawam al-jihad, the permanence of jihad. Uh, Islamists believe that uh, war is a constant, 
constants and everything else around it just caters to the constant state of warfare so we're always at war but you can still get married you can still uh, cook a dinner but you're still war is the constant state and cc went instead and said how is that even a religion how how was that a religion to live like that where war is the constant and peace is uh the exception well, so that, that tells you everything you want to know about what he believes. And the, the the painful part about what people think is a solution to the atrocities of October 7th is sending Hamas to Egypt. Now, in my own humble opinion, that's analysis and not information, that this attack, which was planned a year ago, was perpetrated on October 7th to mimic the attacks of Yom Kippur War of 1973. And the purpose of that is not only to nullify the Abraham Accords, but more importantly, to nullify the Camp David Accords. And it's not a coincidence that it was planned a year ago before the Egyptian presidential election take place on October 10th, Sisi has been the most popular candidate by far. Uh, but now, if they open the borders and the Rafah crossing and they let Islamists go inside Egypt, they will be able to perpetrate the Islamist coup d'etat against Sisi, which I believe is one of the main objectives of this attack for Islamists to posture and say, we are the ones who are going to redefine the outcomes of the 1973 war of, uh, war of Yom Kippur that resulted in the Camp David Accords. Now it's going to result in the annihilation of the Jewish state because when Islamists have the presidency in Egypt, now, things are going to get very ugly. Uh, how is it a good idea to turn northern Sinai into southern Lebanon? Right. How is it a good idea? Uh, and it's going to be exponentially worse. So that's what we are dealing with right now. Uh, people think that this is a solution, but I think it's, uh, it's horrific for the future of Israel. And of course, Egypt and the whole of the Middle East. So it's a very complicated yet self-explanatory issue. Um, so I hope, you know, I hope we uh, right now, I with the talks about the hostages, it's very disturbing to me because, you know, my own brother was taken a hostage and was tortured by these monsters. I was going to dedicate this this episode to your brother who recently passed away. <laughs> Allah irhamu. Thank you. So, yeah, it's been very tough because I know what these families feel. That's that you know, it, it's not it's it's not politics. It's it's I know how they feel when their loved ones are held by by these monsters. Islamists called me and they made me listen while they shattered his bones. So I know what the Israeli families feel who have people uh, with these horrific monsters 
So I don't know what the future is for uh, the hostage negotiations. Well, I, I, I pray desperately. I wish desperately I, uh, for, for everyone to come home safe. Uh, but of course I am dreading that this is happening through Qatar, uh, which is the brains behind October 7th, by the way, um, I go into excruciating detail about who are the Qataris right now, the regime, who is the Qatari regime. Um, so I hope that uh, Israel uh, wipes Hamas off the face of the earth. If October 7th attacks have happened in any country on earth, we would not be telling Israel to fight this war with one hand tied behind its back. Right. Okay? If this has happened in Egypt, you know what would Egyptians do? Scorched earth. Parking lot. Gaza would be a parking lot. If this has happened in Egypt, Gaza would just be poop, a carpet. So I hope that people wake up that this is not Israel's battle. This is not a battle of the Jews. This is a battle of humanity versus barbarism. Indeed, indeed. Amen. Uh, Cynthia, it is impossible to be satiated from you, or as we say in Arabic, uh, please come back again in in a shorter time than seven years. Let's not wait another seven years <laughs> to have a next one. Please state again the title of your book, which everybody should go out and order immediately after finishing this, watching this show. It's uh, The Secret Apparatus, The Muslim Brotherhood's Industry of Death. Go get it right away. Thank you so much. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. It was sure. so such a pleasure to see you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank Peace. you.